Church is different from every human institution on the planet, or it should be. The church is a direct, visible testimony to the existence of God. The church shows that the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. And it shows that God raised him from the dead three days later. And the church testifies the third part of the gospel, which is that Jesus is coming again to rule and reign over the entire earth. And so because he's going to judge the world in righteousness, we warn everyone to flee from the wrath to come and take refuge in Jesus. Well, that's great to say, but how do you know that's all true? You know, just last night, a fella came in and we were talking with him and he's a vicar's son. And yet he doesn't believe. And I'm telling him things like, Jesus is coming back. And he looks at me like, <laughs> you know, doesn't believe it. And that's, that's fine. But how do we know that this is all true? And the reason is, is because the church can do something that nobody else in the world can do. And that is, we can love one another. And we can love everybody. So last night, I was proving that there is a God because I was loving this guy. And he knew it. And in fact, he needs a job. So uh, we were talking about God providing. And he says, well, why don't you pray for me? And I said, you know what? I was just going to offer that. And we're going to take this fellow on and we're going to pray for him until the Lord provides him a job. Now, who else in the world would have offered to pray for him? Can you get that in a pub? Can you get that at Sainsbury's? Some cashier stops you and says, oh, well, let me pray for you. No. But in the church, you're going to have that, that testimony that God cares, that God loves every single person. So this is what makes God visible. The fact that here's a group of people doing what nobody else on the planet can do. We love one another. Now, when love is not in a church, it is a total disaster. And James wants to make sure we avoid that. So what we're to do is to take our faith in Jesus and now bring it into the church and we don't seek our own pleasures and our own displeasures, but we seek God's pleasure. And we're going to read about that in James chapter 2. Here's what he says. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, 
and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, well, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, well, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who was shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what James wants to say is that faith in Jesus and personal favoritism cannot exist together in the church. Now you notice the way James refers to Jesus. He calls him our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's how it's translated in my Bible. But those two words, the Lord, are in italics, meaning that has been supplied by the translators to kind of get the idea across. But you could literally translate it, our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. And he means that Jesus is the visible glory of God. He said, when you see me, you have seen the Father. He makes the invisible God visible to us, specifically defines God, not this vague, amorphous sort of fog of thinking like, okay, uh, the big whatever he is upstairs kind of thing. Very specific. When you see Jesus, you see how God speaks. You see how God acts. Jesus visibly defines God. And when you look at Jesus, you see that God has no personal favoritism. Now, favoritism, partiality, it's that unfair practice of accepting some people and rejecting others. These people are useful to me. I like them. So I'm going to include them in my little group. But these people, they're useless to me. I don't like them. So I'm going to exclude them from my group 
and keep them out. This group, they're the in group. They're the cool group. These poor guys, we don't like them. So we just give them the message. Hey, man, you're not wanted. Now look at the men that Jesus picked to be his 12 disciples. If you look at them, they're a crazy mix. He chose four blue-collar workers. Those are fishermen. You don't have to have a degree to fish. No PhD in advanced throwing out a net. So these are blue-collar guys. They work every day for a living, do their thing. Then he chose a tax collector. This tax collector had to be rich, period. And he's a traitor to his people. That's who Jesus picked. Let's, let's pick a traitor. Then he chose a radical political nationalist. Now, the four blue-collar guys and the nationalist, who's a fanatic, would have hated the tax collector. And, you know, when you think about it, Jesus even chose a real traitor. He chose somebody he knew would betray him to be part of his close group that would be with him and have access to him at all times. Now, you look at that group and you realize there's no favoritism here. Jesus even chose an enemy and loved him. And I think about this, you look at the early church, and they also rejected favoritism. One example is in Acts chapter 6. And there was a problem there because as they were distributing uh, daily food to the widows, the believers in the church who were widows, the out-of-town Jews, the, they call them the Hellenist those were the Jews living abroad who were not part of the local, what they would call Palestinian Jews. Or um, So there's this difference. They're from the out of town and this is the in town. They noticed that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. That is a favoritism. We're going to respect the widows here from Jerusalem, but we're going to kind of ignore these out-of-towners. And they went to the apostles about this, and they said, Look, choose seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, to oversee this. And if you look at the names of the men that they chose, seven of them, some of these men have names of obvious Greek origin. And so what they were doing is, even in the supervision, they put together people that would make sure that nobody got overlooked. There was no favoritism going on. They rejected favoritism. Now, a really interesting example is in Acts 10 and 11. The Holy Spirit in these chapters arranges for Peter to preach the gospel to people who aren't even Jews. They're Gentiles. And these Gentiles put their trust in Jesus. They go, wow, he died for everybody. That means me. 
and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is what Peter says. In truth, I perceive that God knows shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears God and works righteousness is accepted by him. Now, this is a bombshell as far as Peter's concerned. He goes, wow. Everybody can get saved. God accepts everybody in the gospel. And that really means everybody. Now, Paul has a list of people in the church in Corinth that were accepted by God. And we get this list in kind of a funny way. I'll read the list to you in context. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's people who have sex outside of marriage, they're not married at all, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. He says, you guys were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. And God accepted every single one of you. And he could have said, you know what? You're all useless to me. You're just useless. But he didn't do that. He said, I want you. 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 He says, I can save the most lost person there is. I can do that. There is no partiality with God. You know, God doesn't play this thing about, well, you're useful to me and you're not useful because everybody is useless to God. Does he really need us to get anything done? Like, God is super competent. What are we next to him? Well, son, can you make a planet for me real quick? Uh, well, on second thought, no, maybe not. There's no one righteous. There's no one useful to God. All of us are fruitless before him. Now, favoritism is selfish and wicked because it's about me and who is useful to me. And what James wants to point out is this idea of rich men are useful to me. At least they might be. Now, you know, in verse 2 there, he's talking about a man with gold rings. Gold rings means disposable income. Nice clothes. What if this guy turns out to be a great tither? You know, people make a joke if what if Bill Gates came to my church and he started tithing? 
Wow. So this rich guy walks in. He's got gold rings. Boom, ba-boom. He parked his Corvette chariot out in front. Well, let's give him a good seat. And let's, let's try to get a good relationship going with him. Maybe something is going to come of it. Maybe he's going to like me. Start taking me out to dinner and slipping me a little dough. Or maybe I'm going to get a good connection. Maybe some advantage to me. But you know, poor men. No use whatsoever. You know, they wear dirty clothes and they probably smell too. Blech. That's embarrassing, isn't it? What if somebody catches us in a group and says, oh, you hang out with that kind of person, do ya? Well, you don't look like very cool people. That poor person brings down our value as a group. We're no longer fashionable. We're no longer acceptable. Now, at that point, James says that we have become wicked judges with evil motives. Now, you know, judges are supposed to be impartial. It's not a question of who is that person in front of me. The real issue is, here is the law. This is what the law says. Does this person fulfill that law or do they violate that law? That is, were the votes in the election counted properly or were they falsified? You know, the judge is not to favor which party he likes. He's supposed to find out, did they violate the law or did they not? It doesn't matter who gets elected. Was the election done in the right way? Fairly. And the judge has to uphold what the law says. But when a judge shows partiality, he has just set the law aside. And he decides on his own personal likes and dislikes. Well, I like this party. I like these guys. So I'll say, you won the election. And I don't like this party. So I'm just going to use my authority and say, you guys won. The judge that is sworn to uphold the law has just destroyed the law. Law is no longer in effect. It's just whoever has the power to get his way gets to do anything they want until they lose power. So the rule then becomes, it's not that law rules, it's just get power. Consolidate your power and get more power. Now, if a church allows partiality and personal favoritism, then it destroys that church because a church becomes just like the world. That's how the world acts. So if I judge that you're useful to me, that you could enhance my position or get me a higher position, you're useful to me. I want to be your friend. But if you're not useful to me, then you're out. 
who needs you. And there is no testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no testimony to his crucifixion, his rising from the dead, his coming back again at all. So James actually, in verse 5, gives us a reality check about poor people and about rich people. And what he says is, there are going to be a lot more poor people in the church than rich ones. And he says it's because God has chosen them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. God chose them that way on purpose. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And the Apostle Paul explains God's purpose in this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. God deliberately chooses poor people and weak and not many noble. And he saves them and enables them to do something that the rich and the beautiful and the intelligent cannot do. They can't love one another with all their brains and their beauty and their brawn. You know, they can beat each other up. I was reading the headlines about one movie star who in court, the judge decided that he really did beat up his beautiful wife, 12 out of 14 alleged times. So I thought, okay, this beautiful, famous movie star is able to beat up his beautiful wife. But they can't lay down their lives for one another. She sues him. He sues her. Where's the love in all that beauty and fame? You know, you find when you associate with the lowly, you find that they are humble and you can really have a good time with them. Here are people who have received the love of God. They've been accepted by God. So, you know, they know how to accept others. They know how to include you. They know how to love you. And it's fabulous to be loved and cherished by a humble person. And I found that you, when you re- associate with the arrogant and the proud, 
they reject you because you're ordinary. Not worth hanging around. They're looking for the people who are going to enhance them. Lift them up. Raise their level. Make them seem better. I remember I was in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and we were going to meet with a government official about working with the group Mission for Vision. And this government official, after, you know, quite a long wait, showed up at the place we were going to meet. And man, this guy was a really neat guy. He was funny and smiling and doing his best to speak English with us and wanted to know where we came from. And, oh, I think I've been there before. And we were just having a great time. And we were talking about Mission for Vision, and it came up that we didn't have any money. And when he finally understood that we didn't have any money, he started watching the football game on the big screen in the restaurant. And we all of a sudden disappeared. And he wasn't funny anymore. And he wasn't trying to be our best friend. And we realized, oh, I get it. You thought we had dough. And now that you know we don't have any money, it's like, man, why did I waste my time coming to this dump? See? Favoritism. Now, what James wants to say, here is another reality check, that rich people are nothing to expect anything from. They're in... Verse 6, do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? You know, rich people are arrogant. They're used to getting their own way. I've got money, so I can do whatever I want. They can threaten to go to court because they know a poor person can't afford to defend himself. And maybe that rich guy can control the judge as well. And you notice that this rich guy's attitude toward God stinks. He feels like, man, I can afford to blaspheme God. So here's Jesus, the glory of God himself, and the rich man has no problem blaspheming Jesus. So James says, do you really want to expect good from that person? And I just want to mention here that rich people are not going to heaven. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because this rich guy comes up to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do? in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, well, you obey this law, this law, this law. And the rich man said, well, I've done all that. What do I lack? And Jesus said, go sell everything you've got, give it to the poor. You're going to have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And it says that the rich man went away sad because he had a lot of possessions. And Jesus didn't call him back and say, well, Let's let's work on this, because you're probably a good tither. Jesus just let the guy go. And then he said, you know, 
it's really hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples go, what? He goes, well, if you could put a camel through the eye of a needle, yeah. And they're even more astonished. Who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And you know, the point is that rich man was asked to do something by Jesus. And he said, no. A rich person is not serving God. A rich person is serving wealth. And Jesus said, you cannot serve wealth and God. So rich people are idolaters. You can't worship wealth and God at the same time. So James's attitude is then, why do you expect anything from a rich man? Why is that a good thing? It's a false place to put your expectation. Be rich in faith, he said, and be an heir of the kingdom which is coming. All that in verse 5. And then James puts down wicked judges in verse uh, verses 8 to 11. He, he talks about fulfilling the royal law. And the royal law is most likely what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Do you want to be rejected? Then don't reject anyone. Do you want to be loved and valued? Then you love and value everyone, just the way you want to be treated. And that's according to the scripture James quotes here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just treat people the way you want to be treated. He says, but if you're showing partiality, you're committing sin and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. You love some, but you reject others. You don't love everybody. That means you're breaking the royal law. In everything, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you. Now, look at this attitude here. He who said, do not commit adultery, said, do not commit murder. You know, there are some wicked judges who think, well, I haven't done any of that stuff. I haven't committed murder and I haven't committed adultery. I'm okay. I'm no sinner. I'm a good guy. Just got a few problems. But James's principle here is that if you break one link of the chain of the law, it doesn't matter where you break that link, it's still broken and you've just broken the law of God. And this point about loving your neighbors yourself is the greatest link in the whole chain of the law and everybody breaks it. There's not one person that treats everybody the same way they want to be treated. You love some and you reject others. You break the royal law of love. Now, James upholds that royal law. 
and he calls it the law of liberty. And we have to kind of take a minor detour here that we define the law of liberty because this is something that people get wrong. Now, the law of liberty is the gospel. The gospel sets you free from slavery to sin. Freedom means having nothing more to do with sin and judgment and condemnation. But at the very same time you become free from sin, you become a slave of righteousness. This is the concept that people don't get is that you be you you come from being a slave of one thing to being a slave of another you are free from everything that corrupts and defiles and destroys but in so doing you become a slave of righteousness so now jesus is the master of your life and not sin and this is what paul says in romans 6 do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of these things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Paul also touches on this again in Galatians chapter 5. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Either way, you're not going to do the things that you please. And what this means ultimately is that God created us to be slaves. A slave is someone whose will is swallowed up in the will of another. And whatever happens in your life, you are a slave. That is your nature. You are going to be, in your mind, in your will, swallowed up by someone else's will. That's just the way you're made. And there's only two possibilities. One is... You're going to be a slave of sin. Or if God saves you, you're going to be a slave of God, of righteousness. 
Now, you know, the ultimate proof of this fact is Jesus himself. Because we're told in Philippians chapter 2 that he existed in the form of God, which means he is the boss. He's sovereign. Nobody can tell him what to do. But when he became a human being, when he was born into the human race, Paul says he took upon himself the form of a slave, the essence of a slave. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. So the Lord Jesus became one of us. He became a slave. But unlike us, his will was not swallowed up in sin. It was the other possibility. His will was completely swallowed up in the will of God. And in the Old Testament, the Messiah is called the servant of God. And you could translate that the slave of God. Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That is being a slave of righteousness. And what the Apostle Paul found was that in order to be free from sin, he had to become a slave of righteousness. Somehow or other, that connection wasn't made. That if you want to be free from sin, you have to become a slave of righteousness. But he figured it out. That's what Romans 7 is all about. Whenever you read that, you're going to understand that struggle and realize the first thing Paul realized was, I cannot obey God. I'm a complete slave of sin. I want to, but I can't. And so what he realized was, who was going to save me from the body of this death? He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he found, I have to become a slave of righteousness. And he's very open to it at that point. Do it to me. Now, here's how we bring us all back into James chapter 2. If we uphold the law of liberty, as James says we're to do, and we are slaves of righteousness, as we want to become, he says, then we're going to show mercy to everyone and not favoritism. In verse 12, he says, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. This is a command. Speak like someone who will be judged by the law of liberty. Act like someone who will be judged by the law of liberty. And what that means is we are not judges over anybody. We don't look at people and say, oh, that person is going to be useful to me. I judge him to be a good guy. Oh, that person is useless. No good to me. Reject. That very act is being a wicked judge, and it is breaking that law of liberty. 
We fulfill that law of liberty, by the way, by depending on Jesus to save us. He's the one who freed us from sin. He's the one who has enslaved us to God. And that means our goal is no longer what pleases me, what displeases me. Forget that. The new goal is what pleases God. What fulfills his will? You know what God wants? Mercy. He has accepted us in Christ. And therefore, he says, you receive everybody in Christ. We've been shown mercy. Therefore, we're to show others mercy. That means what you don't deserve. Somebody wrongs us. What we'd like to do is just pay him back up. Oh, that's being a wicked judge. Forgive him. Show mercy. Somebody slaps you on the cheek. Turn the other one. See, slap me right here. Force you to go one mile. Ah, I'll go two. Who cares? And you know, when you start doing stuff like that, people go, where are you from? Why are you so different? I slap people, they, they want to kill me. But I slap you and it's like, you're harmless. What's that? See, and now you're doing something that nobody can do. You're showing mercy just like God. You know, favoritism and partiality is merciless. It's showing no mercy at all. Rejecting people that the Lord Jesus has accepted is sin. And if we are merciless, then we're going to receive judgment without mercy for breaking that law of liberty. In that case, we use our liberty for evil and not for righteousness. And what, he's, what James says here in verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's true. Mercy does triumph. Because Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So what James is saying is that the church is made up of people who understand that they're slaves of God. Do you understand that you have been freed from sin so that you become a slave of lawless or of righteousness. Got to get that right. If you understand that, then you want to be pleasing to your master. It, you're not a judge anymore. You're under his judgment and it's about pleasing him, not pleasing yourself. Now God's will is forgiveness and mercy. Have you found mercy with God? Do you know what it's like to be forgiven by God? Do you know what it's like to be accepted by him? Have you ever been forgiven by God over and over and over again? Doesn't it feel good every single time? Well, see, God says, if you know how good that feels, then turn around and have mercy on that believer, on that person. Have mercy on them and forgive them. 
70 times 7 in a single day. And then do the same thing again tomorrow. If you're showing favoritism, you know it and you should stop it. Call it sin and ask Jesus to forgive you and cleanse you and wash you. And he will do it. And then give mercy to people that you have rejected. And instead accept them to the glory of God. You know, the church is not a group of people who keep their cliques and they're arrogant and merciless. That's not a church. The church is about love, acceptance, and mercy. And each one esteems others as better than himself. There's unity and belonging. It's kind of like heaven has come down to earth. And that's what we should be like. And what that means is anybody walking into their, our church should be able to see God because they see people doing something that only God can do. Accepting the unacceptable. Loving the unlovable. then they knew that Jesus is real. That's what God wants. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you have accepted us and you haven't rejected us. We came to you knowing that we have sinned against you, that we deserve nothing from you except judgment. And we know that we have earned hell. And yet because of Jesus dying for us, rising again from the dead, you have accepted us. It is glorious. And we don't want to reject anybody. Doesn't matter if they're, by the world's standards, unlovable, not worth anything. You have made them a value that goes beyond money because you gave the only begotten Son of God in our place. And so help us to love everybody. Help us to receive everybody. Now we thank you that you can even save rich people. You said not many noble, not, not any noble. And so we want to love even them. We don't want to expect anything out of them because only you are God. So Lord, make your church a marvel and a miracle, a place where anyone and everyone can be loved and accepted by you. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, Heavenly Father, this week, please help us. Wherever we're scattered, to love one another and love all men, no matter what. Help us to love plumbers. Help us to love higher people who pick up scaffolding. Help us to love the unlovable with your power. In Jesus' name, amen. For I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see.